Welcome to Wednesday Word, a Bible study led by Pastor John Jenkins of Northport Baptist Church. If you have your Bible, turn over to Acts 12. So we have been in Acts 12 for a few weeks, I guess. I don't know how long. But we'll finish Acts 12 today. How about that? And then next week we'll go to Acts 13. But we are going to stay with Acts 12 just this morning because I want you to see something I believe Acts 12 points to that is just very, 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 very important in our day, which is the day we live on this earth. And of course, you know my contention, I believe we're living in the last days. So here's a great question for you. How do you know when you're in the last days? How do you know? You have signs, okay. So what are some of the signs that we're in the last days? Earthquakes a pretty good one. You have wars, rumors of wars. Others? Israel becoming a state. What else last days? Society. Yeah, to me, that's one of the main ones. One of the downward spirals of society. And we won't get into this because it would take me forever and I'd get on a soapbox, but... Read Romans 1 sometime. And then here's what I want you to... If you read Romans 1, this is what I want you to see. I want you to see the final piece of the puzzle where you know you're in a society that is completely gone. Do you know what it is? It's homosexuality. That's, that's what it is. Because... Just read Romans 1 and see where it starts and see where it ends, okay? And so not only are we in a society and really for most of the world now in a place where we don't just allow homosexual behavior and we've even made it law to allow homosexual marriage, now we've elevated it above everything else. And that is what is praised, and that is what is to be attained. I mean, that's what they're trying to teach your kids. I hope you understand that. Okay? And so Romans 1 is all about the judgment of God, every bit of it. That's what it's about. It's how God judges after Christ. Okay, so how does God judge the world after Christ came and died on the cross? Well, it's very simple. He just lets us go. And He gives us up to ourselves. And when we turn from Him and we turn to ourselves, guess what that leads to? Read Romans 1. That's what it leads to. And so, of course, the whole heart of God in giving you up is for you to return. That's His heart. It's the story of the prodigal son. It's Luke 15. Okay, He lets us go. He abandons us so that we will live in the consequence of our sin and wherever it takes us. And Romans 1 tells you where it takes us. But the whole heart of God behind that is that you'll come to the end of yourself like the prodigal son and you'll come to your senses and you will return to the Father. But I'm telling you, the way you know that we're in the last days is Romans 1. And we've come to the end of Romans 1. I don't see how you can 
see it any other way. That's just where we are as a society. That's where we are as a culture. That's where we are around the world. And you can just look at what's praised and what's elevated and how contradictory it is to God. Okay, so if that's true, which I believe it's true biblically, okay, the church should be doing some things, right? Because time is getting short. And Jesus says in the book of John that we must quickly carry out the task given to us by the one who assigned them to us because night is coming and then no man can work. Okay, night is coming, of course, is the return of Jesus and its final judgment. Okay, so what should the church be doing? What should we be about? Well, we should be about proclamation of the gospel so that people can know they're at the end so that they can return to the Father. Okay, that's what I believe. I don't see how you can read the Bible and think any other thing. We should always be about that, but as we get closer to the end, we should really be about that because time is drawing nigh. Okay, so what should we be doing as we proclaim the gospel? What do you proclaim with the gospel of Jesus Christ? What do you tell people? I'm asking the question. Y'all can answer this. He loved Jesus. What he did, he died on a cross for us. And what did he die for on the cross? Okay. Now here's the problem in our society and here's the problem with the church. We don't like to talk about people's sins, right? How many sermons do you hear on sin everywhere? You don't hear a lot of sermons on sin. But please understand this. No one knows they need a Savior unless they first know they're a sinner because there's no need for salvation unless you know you have sinned and know the consequences of sin. Right? So what are the consequences of sin? Death. Death. I mean, the Bible says that. All of us have sinned. But there's other consequences. Separation from God, disease, bondage, loss of joy. I mean, look at the world around you. If you want to see the consequence of sin, just look at it. Look at the sickness, look at the devastation, look at the destruction. That's what sin does. No peace. There's a zero peace. But here's, to me, the most important part. Where does sin eternally lead? Hell. Okay? Sin eternally leads you to hell. Now, the church, especially in America, doesn't like to talk about sin, but the church in America sure doesn't like to talk about hell, right? We think that repels people from the gospel, and we've got to talk to them about God's love. And here's the stupidity in this. They think the doctrine of hell makes God seem like some vindictive being in heaven ready to thump someone off this earth and thump them into a lake of fire. They do not see the heart of the gospel. The doctrine of hell is the heart of the gospel, and you cannot have the gospel apart from it. So why do we not talk about it? Why don't we talk about it? Nobody wants to hear about it. Well, nobody definitely wants to hear about it. But this is interesting to me. 
and this is just, this is not church, this is just survey in general of American society. How many people in America do you think believe in heaven? Well, not everybody, but a pretty high percentage. Almost 75% of Americans believe in heaven. That's a pretty high percentage. Okay, how many do you think of Americans believe in hell? Now, this, this one would shock me. I really, it really did shock me. So 75 roughly believes in heaven. What percentage do you think believes in hell, believes in an eternal hell? 61. Okay, so that's a lot higher than I would have never dreamed that. Now, 24% of Americans say they have no idea what happens after death, okay? Have no idea. But this is where it gets interesting to me anyway. Okay, out of all the people that believe in heaven, 75% roughly, how many of them think they're going to heaven? Not all, but 64% of them believe that. So just 10% less that believe in heaven believe they're going to heaven. Okay? So that's a pretty, still a pretty good majority. Okay, let's flip it. Out of the 61% that believe in hell, how many do you think believe are there going to hell? <laughs> Almost. It is one half of 1% of that 61% believe they're going to hell. Okay? So people don't like to even think about hell or the implications of hell, right? They don't, I mean, we don't want to think about it. But think about this. Well, and that's even been a teaching in the church at some point, annihilationism. And there's been sects of that where some people believe once you die, you just die, it's over. Some people believe you might go to hell for a little, by, little bit to be punished, and then you're just annihilated and God gets rid of you. But for the most part, do you know one doctrine that the church has always agreed on throughout church history? There are very few, by the way. But there's one doctrine that the church, and I'm talking about across the board, Catholics, Protestants, <laughs> Orthodox, whatever you want to say, for the most part have agreed upon for 2,000 years of church history. Do you know what it is? It's the doctrine of hell. I mean, we don't agree on anything else hardly, right? We don't agree about baptism. I mean, you can go down the list. There's a lot of things we don't agree on. But the doctrine of hell is one that the church has pretty much historically agreed upon except for the last 50, 60 years, maybe 100 years. And so... For whatever reason, the church has gone away from this. And I'm telling you, it is one of the things that has stopped the gospel, especially in America. Because number one, if you don't know you're a sinner, you don't need a Savior, right? Number two, even if I tell you you're a sinner and there's no consequence to your sin, do you need a Savior? Well, why do you need a Savior? There is consequence to sin. There is consequence to sin. And biblically, the eternal consequence for sin is hell. But again, I say this. I want you to understand this. You cannot understand the love of God apart from this. And that's what I want you to see, and that's what I want you to understand, and that's what I want you to understand is the heart of the gospel. Because people don't look at it like this. They do not look at it like this. They try to get around it. They try to avoid it just so they can talk about other things. But it's the heart of the gospel. Okay? So I sort of want to show you this in Acts 12, but 
just as a jumping off point. Because, of course, in Acts 12, what we have seen is we've seen a great story about God just miraculously saving Peter. Now, Acts 12 doesn't start off with a miraculous salvation because it starts off about a man named Herod Agrippa. And Herod Agrippa is evil, and he comes from an evil family. His granddad's Herod the Great killed Jesus when Jesus was born. And so now Herod Agrippa is in charge, and I've told you that Herod Agrippa is Jew, but he is, the family anyway, has bought their kingship from Rome. So he is the king of Judea, all Judea. He's the king. And so at Passover time, just before Passover time, he has the apostle James beheaded, the brother of John. He's beheaded. He's our first disciple that is martyred. And then he gets so much praise for that, then he arrests Peter, the ringleader of the church, and he's going to behead him. But it's Passover, so they don't kill prisoners at Passover, so they're waiting till after Passover. And so during that time, sometime, whenever that was, the church began to pray, and they fervently prayed, earnestly prayed. And God miraculously saved Peter. An angel came. We've been talking about that story. We've been talking about what happens. So right after that, the next day is what I kind of want you to see. So if you have your Bible, look at verse 18 there, Acts 12. This is what we're going to read today. So the next day, after Peter was miraculously saved and went to the house, knocking on the door, and they didn't believe it was him, this is what happened the next day. At dawn, there was a great commotion among the soldiers about what had happened to Peter. Herod Agrippa ordered a thorough search for him. When he couldn't be found, Herod interrogated the guards and sentenced them to death. Afterward, Herod left Judea to stay in Caesarea for a while. Now, the reason he went to Caesarea, this is where he lived. Herod the Great built a beautiful palace on the Mediterranean Sea in Caesarea. And if you've ever been to Israel, you can go to Caesarea and see some of the ruins. But it's a beautiful place. That's where he spent all his time. The only time he would really come to Jerusalem is during festivals, large festivals like Passover. So he went back to Caesarea, and this is what happens next. Look at verse 20. Now Herod was very angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon, so they sent a delegation to make peace with him because their cities were dependent upon Herod's country for food. The delegates won the support of Blastus, Herod's personal assistant, and an appointment with Herod was granted. When the day arrived, Herod put on his royal robes and sat on his throne and made a speech to them. Look at verse 22. This is important. The people gave him a great ovation, shouting, It is the voice of God, not man. Instantly, an angel of the Lord struck Herod with sickness because he accepted the people's worship instead of giving the glory to God. So he was consumed with worms and died. Okay. That's, how many of you heard sermons preached on this before? I mean, this is not one we talk a lot about, I guess. But here's what I want you to see about this guy named Herod Agrippa. Okay. He was an interesting dude, number one. Now, we won't get into history of the Bible and how we got the Bible, but one of the ways we know the Bible's accurate, just one of them, there's many, by the way, but we have extra-biblical accounts of things that happen in the Bible. One of those, New Testament-wise, Josephus was a historian, and he wrote a lot of things that basically tell us 
The Bible's true, and it's actually historical. And one of the things that he wrote about was Herod Agrippa. And so I just want you to see what Herod Agrippa was like, because it really gives us a little bit more insight than Acts 12 into his persona, I guess. Okay, this is just who he is. Just listen to this. This is Josephus writing. He says, In honor of Caesar, upon his, talking about Herod Agrippa, being informed that there was a certain festival celebrated to make vows for his safety, at which festival a great multitude was gotten together. On the second day of which shows, he put on a garment made wholly of silver. Okay, now this is the royal robes that Acts 12 is talking about. Now, why do you think he put on a garment of silver? Why would he want it made of silver? Okay, it shines. Okay, so whenever it would catch the light, it would radiate the light, and it would make him look glorious. I mean, how in the Bible, when we see God, how is God portrayed biblically? I mean, we got to turn from him, right? Because of the light. I mean, he's light. Well, so what Herod's doing, he's putting on a silver robe to be God, basically, to look like God. And so not only that... <laughs> Listen to what he has around him. And so, because this is just funny to me. But, and as was his way as, I'm trying to find where I was, okay. Those that looked intently upon him, and presently his flatterers cried out, one from one in this place, and one from another, that he was God. So not only did Herod Agrippa put on a silver robe, he had flatterers or people that would walk around him, behind him, that would proclaim things about him and flatter him to make him feel better about himself. So that's who he was. Okay, so is it any surprise in Acts chapter 12 when he sits down on his throne with his royal robe, his robe of silver, and he makes a speech, who do you think gets the crowd stirred up to proclaim he is God? It's his flatterers, and then the people of Tyre and Sidon join in. Oh, he's God. He can't be man. And then what happens? God basically says, I've had enough. And whatever God strikes him with, I don't know what it is, but it ain't good, right? I mean, have you ever been eaten by worms? I don't know. Doesn't sound good to me. But according to Josephus in his death, it took five days for him to die. Five days. Okay. So for me, the end of Acts chapter 12 is just a picture of humanity. Right? Okay, God's Word, Isaiah 53. All of us are like sheep. And we've done what? We've strayed away. And we've left God's path to do what? Follow our own. Okay, so we've left God. We've left what He says. We've left the worship of Him. And we've followed our way. What is our way? Well, basically, if we're leaving God and what He says, are we not just becoming our own God and wanting to be the God of our life? 
And in that, and in this world, what do we want? What do we strive for? What do we long for? What do we buy possessions for? What do we do all these things for? For the acceptance and praise of others, right? Is that not what we do? Well, of course it's what we do. I mean, you can say not, but that's what we do. We like to be flattered, right? We like to be praised. We like to feel glorious or whatever else. And is that not what our society points us to? Go watch any advertisement on TV. I mean, is that not what advertising agencies play to and placate to? Just go watch children's advertisements. You can even see it clearer in children's ads than you can in adult ads. So this is a picture of humanity. And then that picture of being eaten by worms and how descriptive that is. There's some pretty good descriptors of what hell's going to be like. And so for me, maybe this is not an accurate account, but I believe it is. I believe this is a pretty good picture of what Jesus talks about in Luke chapter 16. Because Jesus tells a story. Now, in Luke 16, I don't believe this is a parable. I believe it's a story, and I believe it's an accurate account. Now, Biblically, through the Gospels, we have 38 parables, okay? Now, what is a parable? A parable is a story, but it's a metaphor, okay? It's a story with a spiritual meaning, right? Because that's a parable. It might not necessarily be true. It's a story that tells you what is true, okay? Does that make sense? Okay, but out of the 38 parables, never does Jesus use a name in those parables. He never makes it like a historical account. It's just a story. But in Luke 16, he tells a story about a rich man and a man named Lazarus. Okay, a rich man and a man named Lazarus. He specifically says this. Okay, now we don't know the rich man's name, but we know he's rich. And do you know what he wears? Go read 16. He looks just like Herod Agrippa. He wears the finest of clothes and he wears clothes made of purple. Now what does purple represent? If you know anything... It's royalty. That's what it represents. So this rich man is making himself and elevating himself above everybody else. And then the contrast to that is Lazarus. Now, does Lazarus have purple robes and royal robes and clothes made of linen? He has nothing. He has sores. And you know what the dogs do to his sores? They lick them. That's what Jesus says. And so he comes to the rich man's house. You know what he does at the rich man's house? He eats the scraps that they throw out for the dogs. That's what he does. But then Jesus says that both of these men die. And they have two different eternal destinations. Okay, where does the rich man go? He goes to hell, and Lazarus is taken to heaven. He goes to heaven. Okay, now what's amazing, the most amazing part of this story to me is Lazarus can see some things in hell. What can he see? He can see heaven. And who does he see in heaven? He sees Lazarus. He knows who Lazarus is. And so what does he ask for? Two things. But the first thing he asks for is he asks Abraham, would you please... 
Just let Lazarus dip his finger in some water and come and touch my mouth. And then the second thing he asks for is what? He remembers that he has some brothers that are still on earth. Would you please go tell them what is going to happen? Okay, I'm, for me, this is the clearest picture of hell in all the Bible. Okay, because it tells us some things about hell. Number one, it tells us that we're going to survive our funeral, right? No matter who you are. If you're a follower of Christ, if you hate Christ, you're going to survive your funeral. That ain't the end. No such thing as annihilationism, okay? You're going to survive it, and you're going to go one of two places. There's only one of two eternal destinations, heaven or hell. But not only are you going to survive your funeral, you're going to survive your funeral with your memory, you're going to know who you are. Your personality is still there. You're going to know your past. You're going to know your future, right? Does the rich man not know what he's in for for the rest of his life? Yeah, because he doesn't want his brothers to experience the same thing. He knows that. Can he feel in hell? Can he feel pain? Can he feel thirst? Yeah. Now remember, too, the hell Jesus is talking about here is before we're reunited with our body, right? Okay, this is not the final hell that Revelation talks about where there's gonna, the dead are going to rise and their bodies are going to be reunited just like it happens at the rapture for us. So this is even before they have a body, this is how hell is described. What's it going to be like once they have a body? You know what it's like to feel pain right now, right? It's no fun. Joe's back pain fun? No fun. Okay, pain's bad. But for eternity, you can feel pain. Okay, so there is consequences to sin, correct? Okay, there is eternal separation from God. And if you don't believe it's eternal, go read Matthew 25. Because guess what Jesus says? He says it's eternal. Go read it. Maybe you read it just a few weeks ago or a couple, last week as we were reading through the Gospels. But hell is eternal. Now, I could stand here and I could talk a lot of things about hell. I could talk about all the Bible descriptors of hell. We could talk about all those things. But to share the gospel of Jesus Christ and to understand the gospel of Jesus Christ, this is what you must understand. Because I'm telling you, it's the heart of the gospel. When Jesus was in the Garden of Gethsemane, He prayed. And we talked about this last week or the week before where He took the three, James, Peter, and John, into the Garden with Him. And he asked them to pray, and of course they fell asleep. But when he went into the garden, in the inner garden, the Bible says, by himself, what did he pray to God? He prayed something specifically. He said, please don't make me drink from this cup. Please don't make me drink from this cup. But then he prays, not my will, but thy will be done. Okay? He goes back and prays it again. According to Luke, how intense is his prayers? 
blood. He's sweating blood from his brow. Okay, what is the cup he's talking about? Well, it's not death. It's not even the sin. This is what it is biblically if you know the Old Testament, study the Old Testament, book of Psalms and others. The cup represents the wrath of God. It's God's wrath for sin. It's God's wrath for sin. And so Jesus knew just in hours He was going to have to go to the cross and He was going to die. But more than that, He knew He was going to have to drink from the cup. It would be poured out upon Him the wrath of God for all sin. And he knew what that meant. Do you know what it means? It means hell. Okay? That's what hell is. It's the wrath of God. It's eternal separation from God. Hell is the only place you can go where God isn't. Okay, as bad as this earth is right now, as horrible as it is, and I think it's bad, I think it's horrible, what is still present with us? God, His present through the Holy Spirit, right? So God is still present no matter how horrible it is. So we're still surrounded by the presence of God. Well, guess what happens in hell? God's not there because God is holy and cannot be with sin. So that is the one place you go where God is not and where His ultimate wrath is poured out. On the cross, what did Jesus Christ have to do? He had to drink from that cup. He tells you that. That's why He prays not to do it. Okay, so we know that on the cross, when this took place, was at the 12 o'clock hour at noon. Because what happens? The Bible's very specific about this. It says that darkness falls. Utter darkness. And for three hours, from 12 o'clock to 3 o'clock, Jesus hung on that cross. And what did God do? God poured out His wrath. 2 Corinthians 5. The one who knew no sin, what? Became sin, was made an offering for sin so that we could be made right with God. So for three hours, Jesus Christ became sin. And when He became sin and was made an offering for sin, what did God have to do? He had to turn, but He had to pour out His wrath and judge sin. And Jesus Christ bore our judgment, bore the wrath of God for our sin. He lived our hell. Jesus went to hell for you because ultimately that's what hell is. It's the wrath of God, the judgment of God, the eternal separation from God. And on the cross... Jesus Christ was the offering for sin, and that's what He became. So why I say that you have to understand the doctrine of hell to understand the heart of the gospel is because that is the love of God revealed in Christ Jesus our Lord. Jesus bore your hell so that you would never have to. That's what He did. Well, that's a different verse, and I believe that's a different thing. We can talk about that, but I don't believe that. Yeah, because when it talks about that, it talks about he talked to people in chains and different things. So, yeah, that's a totally different discussion, honestly.
But, uh, but Jesus Christ died our hell, lived our hell. He went to hell for us because ultimately that's what hell is. Okay, so here's my question. For anybody that says they believe in the love of God, they believe in the gospel, but they deny hell. Okay, how just would God be to send His Son to do what He did if there was another way? I mean, how stupid would that be, right? I mean, it's just idiocy. How dumb would Jesus Christ be to go to the cross and drink from God's cup His wrath if there was another way? It's not logical, is it? It's illogical to think that. There is no other way because this is the way that God orchestrated ever since Genesis chapter 3. Right? What happens at the end of Genesis 3 when we sin and when we are kicked out of the garden? We're kicked out of the garden for a very specific reason. Why are we kicked out of the garden? Because that represents heaven. That's what heaven is. It's paradise. Jesus says it from the cross. It's paradise. Okay? What would have had to happen if God had have left us in the garden? He had to leave, right? He's holy. He had to be separated from sin. So we would have stayed in the garden. And what would have happened to heaven? What would have happened to the garden? It would have become hell. It would be just like what we experience now, right? Okay, what if you let sinners into heaven? What would heaven become? A fallen world. It would become just what we have. Okay, so what did God do at the garden when He had to banish Adam and Eve? He did something very specific with angels, by the way. Two of them, He set them there with flaming swords to guard it so we couldn't come back in. Why? Because what is in the middle of the garden? The tree of life. And what does the tree of life give you? Eternal life. So if you eat from that tree, you're eternally separated from God. So what did God do? He banished us. With the hopes of what? Getting to the end of ourselves so one day we'll return to the Father. It's the heart of the gospel and it's all the way through with God's Word. And everything He's done since Genesis 3 and His redemptive history is pointing to that. And so people cannot know that and know His heart without knowing and understanding hell. And I'm just telling you, the church does not know and understand the doctrine of hell and it has cost us and it has cost us souls because we don't proclaim what and how we should proclaim if we truly understood what God's Word taught. Now, I understand why Christians don't like to talk about hell, because you're probably like me. You probably know people in hell. And you probably have loved ones in hell if you were pretty honest about it, right? I mean, I do. And the older I get, the worse that gets for me. For whatever reason, I don't know why. But what should that do? That should spur you and that should convict you to share the gospel like you've never had with your family and those you love and friends and neighbors and whoever. Because if this is true and the eternal consequences of this are true, think of the ramifications if we don't do what God has called us to do. I mean, just the imagery is horrific. And so for me, 
this should be proclaimed in our churches to spur us to preach the gospel. It just should. So just interesting to me, but look back in Acts 12. Right after, right after Herod Agrippa died and was eaten by worms. Look at the next verse. Meanwhile, the word of God continued to spread and there were many new believers. Now, why were there many new believers? Because the word of God spread, right? What must happen for people to be saved? The word of God has to spread. People have to know, they have to hear. Faith comes by hearing and hearing what? The word of God, Romans 10. The word of God must be preached, it must be proclaimed, and it has to be understood so that people can be saved. And you can't pick and choose what you like out of the word of God and throw the rest away. It doesn't work that way. It just doesn't. And so we must preach a whole gospel and not have truths but the whole counsel of Scripture, whether we like it or not. And I don't like the doctrine of hell. It's not my favorite topic to preach on. There's a lot of other things I would rather preach on than hell. But when we exclude it from our vocabulary and we exclude it from our teaching, I'm telling you it has eternal consequence. It has eternal consequence. So maybe today wasn't pleasant for you. It's probably not pleasant to think about. But again, my prayer is it would spur you to do what God says in His Word. Because there's two truths I know. If I know nothing else, these two truths I know. If there is one thing that I deserve, it is hell. Because I'm a sinner and I'm a great sinner and my sin is great. But I'm telling you the second truth is greater than that because Jesus Christ came and He died for my sin. And when I put my faith and trust in Him and gave Him my life, He forgave me and He cleansed me and He made me right with God. Because that's what He does. So what do you do to be saved? Well, Acts 16 just simply says you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what you do. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. So that is the message we must proclaim. Because I'm telling you, night is coming. Night is coming. And then no man can work. So read John 9 for that. Let's pray, Lord. Thanks for tuning in today. Join us next week as Pastor John continues the study. And if you're looking for more, find us at northportbaptist.org.